Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Show podcast. Former Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Brian Peckford wrote a blog piece in which he combines the news stories of the StatScan deep dive into confidential banking information on Canadians and Adrian Clarkson, the former Governor General's deep dive into the public money trough. I spoke with the former Newfoundland Premier about that. She was known as Jane Doe, but her real name is Judy Monroe Layton, and she very publicly accused Justice Brett Kavanaugh of raping her in the backseat of a car as congressional hearings into Kavanaugh's inclusion on the Supreme Court of the United States were being held. She now admits that she lied because she was trying to stop Kavanaugh from making it to the court. I spoke with Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal lawyer and media commentator. British Columbia is engaged in a multi-week referendum on which voting methodology the province's electorate should use in upcoming provincial elections. Voters are being asked two questions. And I asked Richard Justman about that, global news reporter for the B.C. legislature. As the migrant caravan from Central America makes its way to the Mexico-U.S. border, President Trump is deploying the American military to stop the caravan. How does a former senior U.S. military commander see this? Colonel Peter Mansour, former executive officer for General David Petraeus in Iraq, joined us. The American midterm election, less than 48 hours away, what are the expectations? What are the possibilities as far as the decision of the electorate is concerned? The decision by Statistics Canada to start scooping up personal financial data on Canadians might not break the law here, but one expert says the demands it is forcing on Canadian private sector businesses could end up jeopardizing their trade opportunities in Europe. In an interview with the West Block's Mercedes Stevenson, Scott Smith, a privacy expert with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, warned businesses are concerned that the requirement to hand over consumer data to the Federal Statistics Agency will highlight the differences between Canadian privacy laws and a tough new law in Europe and put trade at risk. Quote, we're concerned about adequacy, and adequacy simply means the legislation in Canada is substantially similar to that in Europe. So the decision allows businesses here to continue doing business with European companies under a new privacy regulation there, but the public sector is not subject to PIPADA, a major concern that has been raised repeatedly in recent years by the Federal Privacy Commissioner. The problem is our public sector privacy laws are not substantially similar, and by amplifying this element of the distinction, it may threaten that future relationship, Smith said. In other words, no, those are the words, that our trade relationship, our deals with the European companies could be hampered, damaged, stopped by this innocuous little plan that StatScan has without, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, engagement of the federal government from the beginning, right, tongue-in-cheek, can be damaging. This is just so wrong. Brian Peckford is the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. We spoke with the premier a few weeks ago about the notwithstanding clause and how that was so necessary to be part of the charter and uh, because he was part of the negotiations. If that hadn't happened, there wouldn't have been the repatriation of the Constitution. 
Premier Peckford, thank you very much for taking the time today. So you're not really exactly enthusiastic about this StatScan compilation of your, my, all of our listeners' private information, which they, of course, say is only there to provide them with an idea, a sense of what we do routinely so they have a good idea of where we go on vacation and, you know, what restaurants we use. Yeah. This is unbelievable to me. As I said on my blog, it's shocking. Um, I just don't know where our country, uh, where society is going this uh, in these times, um, a few weeks ago, as you said, we talked about the notwithstanding clause. There's also another clause in that Constitution, the Charter, which we approve. And by the way, Roy, uh, we were right um, in that interview back then, just a few weeks ago. The court did rule along the lines that uh, you and I talked about and vindicated what we were saying on your program. Now, today, we have, we, we have a Section 7, you know, in the Charter, which talks about protecting the liberty and security of the person in Section 7. I would argue that this StatsCan power given under legislation in the House of Commons to allow StatsCan to commandeer, if you will, the banks into providing information on individuals' banking habits, all the way to, by the way, according to Amanda Colony, all the way uh, to their social insurance numbers, uh, violates that provision of the Constitution. We thought our liberty and our security of the person was protected through Section 7. And so, therefore, fundamentally, I think we have a problem with personal liberty and to what extent a federal government of Canada can coerce in violation of that charter. So I think it's incumbent upon the opposition parties in the House of Commons and other leaders in the country to challenge this at its fundamental level, not at the business of a little privacy here and no privacy there, but fundamentally to determine whether, in fact, the people of Canada are protected in the privacy of their banking activity from the federal government and that the only exception could be in terms of whether the information was necessary for terrorism or for some capital uh, crime or something, that some exceptions could be made. But otherwise, the normal functioning of an individual's transaction with its own bank should be protected. Didn't it seem to be you to uh, to be rather cavalier, the manner in which the Prime Minister dealt with it? We played the clip a, cl- a couple of minutes ago where he just almost casually, and he was reading, he wasn't, he wasn't speaking uh, extemporaneously, he was reading, but it just seemed he so casually dismissed any concerns that you might have, that I might have, that our listeners may have, that people across Canada may have, that there's nothing to worry about here, there's nothing to see here, move along, move along. I think that, I think that, that that's what struck a lot of people, besides the content and substance of what, uh, every, what StatsCan is saying. The other thing is, if you read... A paragraph that StatsCan put out talking about it's becoming increasingly difficult to capture household expenditures by relying on traditional surveys. <laughs> that tells it all. 
<laughs> my, oh my, Statsken, you're having some problems by asking Canadians to give you some information. So now that you're having some problems by asking the Canadians themselves whether they can have some of their information, you're going to now, because it's getting increasingly difficult, go behind their backs and do it through commandeering the banks. Now, that tells you all one needs to know. In all of the emails that I've received, and I've received many over the last week, because we first spoke with David Aiken, chief political correspondent for Global News, who right. broke the story last weekend. We spoke with David. Since then, I've received a significant number of emails from people across the country, and they all, virtually all, I shouldn't say all, but they all, <laughs> virtually all, raise the point somewhere in the email that perhaps the government is actually not doing this randomly, that there are people, that there are Canadians of particular interest to the federal government, and those Canadians of particular interest will be certainly among those whose information is being culled. What do you say? Uh, one has to, and, and you know, <laughs> given that you got so many emails making that point, uh, shows you that Canadians are getting very, very suspicious of the actions of our governments. And this just points it out in spades. But fundamentally, our personal liberty is being jeopardized by actions like this by agencies uh, of the federal government. You know, in, in my blog, I quoted uh, Frederick Hayek, whose book I'm just rereading, The Constitution of Liberty. And he talks about that. This is a book in 1960. Uh, Mr. Hayek, of course, won the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, as well. Uh, Austrian economist who taught at Columbia University for many years, and his books are, have become classics in their field. And this one on the Constitution of Liberty is sort of a classic of the 20th century on uh, defining and, and describing personal liberty and how, over time, governments who were supposed to be limited to do certain activities have expanded their role in society to the point where personal liberty means very little. And he talked about the day that would come, like George Orwell did, uh, he talked about the day that would come if, if, if there wasn't a, a lot of vigilant citizens around when um, these kinds of things would occur, and they're done subtly and, and, and therefore are easily uh, uh, disbanded with by a prime minister or by a minister or by the agency itself. Uh, we're just getting tough doing it the normal way, so now we've got to do it the abnormal way. So, so this was all signaled, and we are, we are at that point right now. And so a national conversation needs to be held, and the, and the opposition parties need to be held uh, account of as well as the government, because uh, they should stop and ask the question, you know, is this a fundamental uh, weakness now of our society? Have we evolved this far where agencies of the government can come in without our consent and look at our privacy transactions? I think the opposition parties are really election opportunists at this point. Yes. Between now and the 21st of October of next year, they're going to ruffle no feathers that could cost them even one vote. If an advisor says, this is too tricky, don't go near it, they won't go near it. Yes. And Premier, when you talk about having a national conversation, that being necessary, I fundamentally agree. I also saw yesterday, just going through some of my notes, I keep a lot of things so that later on, when everybody else has forgotten them, yes. I can remind folks. Yes. I found last year there was a study done in the United States, a survey done of Americans, and a majority of Americans, and freedom of speech was just a, such a, 
such a valued cornerstone in the United States, a majority yeah. of Americans feel they can no longer exercise their freedom of speech, certainly when it comes to challenging governments, because right. they'll be shouted down. And so they're intimidated to the point right. they just don't do it anymore. And, and when our know, freedom of expression is so compromised, we have a serious problem. You know what? You're dead right, because in my ordinary day-to-day -day activities, I encounter people. I bike every day, and i got a certain loop here in, Bang in Nanaimo where I bike every day, and I go in for coffee here and there. And I'm a part of a couple of coffee groups and one thing and another. And but I, I innocently, and most times people don't know who who you know my, my past. And I just ask some you know sort of basic questions. Did you hear this on television or did you read this in the paper or whatever? And I have been absolutely shocked over the last year, especially the last year because I've kept track of it. How many Canadians are afraid to even talk to me about it, sitting down in mm -hmm. a coffee shop because mm -hmm. they look to their right and to their left to see if anybody can hear Yeah, them. I've seen that too. My voice is sort of loud, and, and they, they really, really don't want me to engage in that kind of conversation. You wrote about uh, the former Governor General, Adrian Clarkson. We just found out uh, that the former GG has been billing us over $100,000 a year, or around $100,000 a year, since she left office in 2005. And she wrote a piece uh, a couple of days ago in which she justifies what she did. And so she gets lots of requests to speak and, uh, and, and appear at various functions, uh, many of which she doesn't get paid for, and uh, just makes the case that she's remained in public life and uh, she's essentially entitled to her entitlements. What do you say? <laughs> Remember I mean, that line, don't you? <laughs> one week to have StatsCan uh, coming out uh, and trying to, uh, you know, publicly justify the unjustifiable. Now we've got the entitlement princess or queen trying to... <laughs> Entitle her entitlements. I mean, you know, in one week, this is a this is heavy. This is heavy stuff, and it's hard to <laughs> assimilate all of this. I mean, there are lots of former prime ministers. I mean, Mr. Mulroney, Mr. Kretschmer, Mr. Martin, who are around. Uh, there are lots of former ministers who served a lot longer in the uh, House of Commons and in formal public service than Adrian Clarkson, uh, Clarkson ever did. Hers is six years, six years, and she's gotten five point seven million dollars. Plus, because we don't know how much of that seven million for her her foundation, uh, she was able. The government was able to match with the private sector. We do know for sure she's gotten five point seven million uh, since two thousand and five. Pension uh, and her expenses paid, like you said, almost over a hundred thousand dollars a year every year. Plus a three million startup for her foundation. Not all bad. I mean, this is the ultimate in, in entitlement they've ever seen. I mean, any child or any teenager or college student reading this, I mean, talk about an entitlement society. They are totally within their bounds now to say, I am entitled as a person of this community to free this, free that, free something else, because the governor general of this country has been doing it since 2005. I'll never forget 1999, her first year as governor general, she flew out to Alberta from Ottawa on a Challenger jet, and she was there for a number of days at functions in Calgary and then Edmonton. When she left uh, Calgary, the Challenger was no longer available. It had been moved to do other business. So yep. she flew to Edmonton on a Dash 8, prop helicopter, uh, prop, prop plane, about 42 yeah, seats, I've, I've right? You've used, you know them. So that was okay, but when it was suggested to the Governor General that she might have to fly back to Ottawa on the Dash 8... <laughs> That was not good. That was not acceptable. So what they did was, at a cost of $61,000 to the taxpayer, yep. 
they flew out another Challenger to Calgary, or Edmonton rather, to pick her up and fly her back to Ottawa with her husband, John Ralston Saul, because she was, no way she was flying from Edmonton on a Dash 8. She was having the Challenger, and she got it. Yeah, well, that just shows you, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the type of uh, behavior pattern that yeah. we're dealing with here. Premier, where, can I you, mean, Premier, I, I know mean, you... I don't know who advised her, but I mean, yeah. she obviously has, has very poor PR advisors to get her to write this article. I think okay, can you, can, you, can you stay with us a little bit longer? Yeah, sure. Okay, because I have to take a break. I want to talk to you some more. Statistics Canada will use anonymized data for statistical purposes only. No personal information will be made public. Statistics Canada is engaged with the Privacy Commissioner's Office on this project and is working with them to ensure Canadians' banking information remains protected and private. Did you hear that? Did you, did you focus on the same words I focused on? A certain amount of transparency. A certain uh, Canadians expect a certain amount of transparency from individuals who served as the vice regal of Canada. They've stepped up and they served Canada. Well, yeah, they stepped up and they served Canada, and they've been handsomely rewarded for that, and they continue to be handsomely rewarded for that until the day they die. But uh, the prime minister, like. I, uh, Premier, I, just, I guess it doesn't matter who the prime minister is. In this case, we have uh, Mr. Trudeau. But if it were another prime minister with another situation, a year out from an election, I don't think they'd be saying very much different. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. What really disturbs me, uh, uh, Adrian Clarkson comes out with this letter. The prime minister is saying, you know, a little bit, we'll get a little bit of transparency. In her letter trying to justify, or her column or her article trying to justify it, she doesn't make one mention of one dollar. She doesn't make one uh, disclosure of anything she did. She just gives numbers that she's compiled or her staff has compiled. This is the little bit of transparency. This is, I mean... I'm insulted as a Canadian, I'm insulted as a citizen, I'm insulted as a taxpayer to have to read this pablum from the former GG who has gotten $5.7 million out of the taxpayers since she left office and is going to get her expenses paid until she dies, in addition to her pension and in addition to money from the government for her foundation. So if the Prime Minister is talking about getting some accountability and transparency into how former GGs are paid, he better start by having uh, Miss Clarkson withdraw that article and bring out another one, giving complete details of everything she did to justify the money she got from us. In, I think it was 2004, that she um, conducted the tour, the Circumpolar Tour, Yes, I the, remember that right, one. Right, the tour of, was it Finland, Iceland, yes. Ukraine, Russia, and it was supposed to cost us a million dollars, which was outlandish anyway, but then it ended up costing us five million dollars. Exactly. And she had an entourage of self-important people who were on this circumpolar tour, and, uh, and when she was asked about the cost and about the money, yeah. Yeah. the response from her office was, the governor general is above politics. <laughs> I wish I could answer that way. Uh, I, I wish I could, too. I wish I could, too. But, uh, you know, somehow, somehow, there's got to be some more 
uh, accountability into this system. And it's just not enough for the Prime Minister to say what he said. What they should have been doing already, they've had a few days now, is actually releasing all of the data. What's wrong with releasing the data that we've paid for? What a novel idea. What a novel idea, Premier. Yep, I agree. Absolutely. And I would imagine that close to 100% of of our listeners are nodding their heads now, are saying, yeah, right on. Yeah, well, what's the big deal? If you're saying you're going to be transparent, well, be transparent and do it. The other thing, of course, his minister could be doing, I know because I was there, it's easy to do, he could have an amendment already in place to go to the, uh, uh, to the House of Commons with, or a new piece of legislation, whichever you want, or amending the existing one, which allows for this to happen, and amend it to say that for the first two years or whatever after they leave office, they will be provided with expense money based upon a scrutiny of the bills that come in to ensure that what was done was in for the nation as a whole or for national unity or whatever for two years. And then after that, they're the same as everybody else. So he could do that tomorrow. But here's the aha moment on, as far as that's concerned. If they did what you're suggesting, and I think it would be behoove them to do that, then the next question that would come from Brian Peckford or Roy Green or any number of people in this country would be, well, let's have a look at some of the other expenses we're not privy to. I agree. And my good friend Michelle Simpson, who was a Liberal Member of Parliament and was Justin Trudeau's seatmate um, when they were in opposition, Michelle started to post all of her expenses online, as our listeners know. And she was immediately called into the office of Michael Ignatieff, who at the time was the Liberal Party leader. And she was dressed down, and she was told she shouldn't do that, she mustn't do that. She refused to comply. And so they took away her privileges to speak in Parliament, which meant she could not even acknowledge the death of a 21-year-old constituent in Afghanistan who was a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. Unbelievable. Yeah, and and she was was then offered a bribe. They offered her a big office with its own bathroom. Yep. When uh, when when she turned them down, they absolutely just dispatched her to the gulag. So, yep. if if they provided us with the information on the expenses as you would like them to, uh, then we would start asking about the other expenses, and that would be exactly. uncomfortable. Premier, there's something else I want to mention to you in our in our closing minutes here, and okay. the Canadian border has been a, a huge issue for the last number of years, and the fact that it's as porous as it, as it is. Is a, is a major concern, not to the sitting government, but certainly to a significant number of Canadians. So I came across a story that I'd filed away um, last year. And again, it's a global news story, <clears throat> excuse me, of the summer of last year, anticipating that by the end of 2021, processing the expected number of refugee claimants or claims, that would be 192,700, that's the expectation, that by the time the year 2021 ends, there'll be 192,700 individuals whose refugee claims will be in in the hopper, as it were, being processed. With the support cost for each claimant at $600 per month, that would tally some $2.97 billion and result in wait times of approximately 11 years. And this is an estimate from the IRB. Uh, uh, it's 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 just amazing. Uh, I mean, you know, talk, 
when you said that they'll have to wait 11 years to get processed to whether they can stay in Canada or not, it, it reminded me uh, of, of the Governor General's uh, millions of dollars uh, of expenses and all the rest of it since 2005, when uh, in my own personal life, um, we had to wait a year and a half, almost two years, for a medical procedure and could wait no longer and had to go pay for it uh, in order to ensure that uh, we were, uh, were safe. Uh, so uh, now, now we talk about wait times for for refugees eleven uh, years being eleven years so that they can be in the country. We don't know uh, whether they should be here or not. Uh, um, and often we don't know where they are. Well, uh, precisely, precisely, they just go into the woodwork. Uh, but I mean, that's an amazing figure. I, I would love to see uh, that author of of that piece uh, update that now this year. One hundred and ninety-two thousand does sound realistic. And I know the $600 figure is quite uh, reasonable. Uh, so, yeah, that, I mean, suddenly we're, we're getting into the billions of dollars uh, to process people that we don't know are even eligible to be here. 192700 by the end of the year 2021. Yes, yes. And uh, we might as well say $3 billion. Yeah. That's 2.97. And this is from the Immigration and Refugee Board of wow. Canada. They can't keep up. Wow. And so what happens? We don't know where the people are. Yes. The, uh, the government is p- p- pounding out the money, and we're told, don't worry, be happy, everything's fine. Yeah. Me- meanwhile, uh, you know, I have, uh, talking about the uh, governor general and, and doing things, we all have, as former politicians, helped out in the community. Um, one of the ways in which uh, uh, it just came to my uh, <laughs> lot to, to help out was uh, usually I get people who come to me uh, after they've exhausted the process, and somebody says to them, "Oh, you live here where uh, for where Mr. Peckford lives. Why don't you just give him a call?" And so I've had to, um, I have dealt with um, a whole bunch of cases where the system, both provincially and federally, has failed these people miserably, whereby they've exhausted all their private savings, and end up then uh, in an awful situation. And in one particular case on, on the medical side. Uh, I actually was able to get uh, a thing reversed, which had cost these people all their savings, and they were down to now just their their Canada pension to live off of, and they were quite uh, comfortable people when the five years before that they had started to uh, to get involved in this thing because they had the, one of the uh, couples had a, had a medical condition. So it's really difficult for me because having been there and then later since. I got out a long time ago, uh, dealing with individuals on a daily basis who have these kinds of problems with the governments, and then you hear about these refugees, then you hear about the Governor General, then you hear about StatsCan. This is why I started my blog, because I became so frustrated, uh, and I needed an outlet to express this, and hopefully uh, some people will read it and see uh, that uh, it's something that they agree with too. Well, I can certainly say to my uh, listeners across Canada, you want to make it a regular occurrence to uh, go to Peckford42 at wordpress.com. Peckford42 at wordpress.com. Premier Brian Peckford, the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Premier, thank you so much for the time, and thanks for still standing up for the folks who need your help. Thank you very much, Roy. It's really good talking to you. We'll talk to you again. Right here. Bye-bye. Brian Peckford. Harry Goldkind uh, joins us, Toronto criminal lawyer and media commentator. And uh, thank you, Harry, for taking the time. And first of all, what is your, what's, your, uh, what's your reaction to what took place? And then can you put it into a, a legal perspective for us, please? 
Sure, and good to be on with you, Roy. First of all, I think just to go back to the intro, everything is political and everybody chooses a side now. There are people that even disagree that the sun rises in the east and that's become political. So that's the day and age we live in, thanks to what I call anti-social media, which is otherwise known as Twitter, which polarizes everybody because that's the world we live in. In terms of Brett Kavanaugh, you know, I thought that the hearings were a bit of a circus. I can tell you that I thought he was massively unfairly treated. I think it's very interesting that as much as President Trump is very, very open and liable to be criticized for a million different things and a million different lies, which he sort of can tell the way you and I eat breakfast easily, on this issue he is absolutely right. And in my view, it should be as nonpartisan that he is right about this issue with Judge Kavanaugh and his fake accusers as he is wrong about so much else that he is called out on. And from a legal point of view, which you asked me about, two very simple things, Roy. One, I believe, and I've said this openly throughout every discussion I have about the U.S. Supreme Court, that nobody on either side should have any respect whatsoever for the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court is a joke in and of itself. It is a partisan hackery kind of court that, as all of your listeners will know, the decisions are as predictable as the day is long. They are based on who appointed you and what your politics are. They have no basis in law. And given that we're in Canada, Roy, that's something that our Supreme Court should be much more proud of. People should be much more proud of our Supreme Court. So I just think in the context where the court itself is a joke, the partisan rancor over the Kavanaugh hearings and the sky is falling and all this stuff is also a joke because that Supreme Court is a political body, not a legal one, and, and Royal end with this. In this day and age, that's even more dangerous where the rule of law that people say Trump is ruining is one that the U.S. Supreme Court has never even stood for. You know, one of the things that I said uh, as these hearings were going forward were that this is not about justice. The Supreme Court is supposed to be about justice, about the ultimate backstop as far as the law is concerned, the Constitution is concerned, the way, the appropriate, the proper way to do things uh, according to legislation and history and all the rest of it. But it's not. It's about politics. It's about, it's about winning another political battle and having a, a, a justice on the court who is going to be at least fundamentally in agreement with the political party that put him or her there. And I'm just echoing what you said. But at the same time, I have some concerns about our, about our court. I just have concerns about just blanket appointments. I'm not suggesting that uh, Supreme Court judges should be elected. I don't want to see the kind of uh, circus that we see in the United States with the congressional hearings. But I'm not comfortable, Ari, with the prime minister and the selection committee going ahead and making an appointment the way they, they're doing it now. There have been too many cases where appointments have just backfired. Not not talking about the Supreme Court necessarily, just appointments are concerning. Well, Let's let's look at the Supreme Court for the first few seconds of my answer, and let's move down towards the provinces and their courts. The one thing about the Supreme Court of Canada is, first of all, you're quite right that whoever's in power of the day gets to appoint the Supreme Court judge. I mean, that that some people would say is very akin to the U.S. It's actually not, because across our history and across different parties, and this may be a little wonky, but I think it's kind of interesting, Political parties that are the prime minister of the day, for example, they might avoid, they might appoint people that are somewhat sympathetic to a certain cause, but they'll also appoint people that have a record of nonpartisan 
legal scholarship. And that is very, very different than the U.S. And as we move down, let's leave Ottawa for a minute. Let's go to every province and how those appointments are done. I've always raised an eyebrow about that. Many appointments are very much who you know, what organization you belong to. Do you give the right speeches to the right advocate society? There's a lot of secrets about that. But first of all, you have to have 10 years of experience to be an appointed judge. And I can tell you, although there are obviously sometimes flies in the ointment, Roy, we have a really decent system of appointing judges that when I and many other lawyers see most judges getting appointed, because we get a legal bulletin, for example, that very few people read besides us lawyers, very rarely, it does happen, but very rarely do we roll our eyes and say, that's a garbage appointment that makes no sense. The way if you drive through the U.S. in election season, you'll see all these election signs for judges that say, I'm tough on crime. I'll hang people. I'm a member of the NRA, so I'll be a good judge. Some people may prefer that, Roy. I don't. Yeah, you make a persuasive argument. I, I, still, I, I still like at the lower court level. That we, I like the idea of, of electing judges. I'm going to have to be persuaded that that's not the right way to go. But I will say you do make a persuasive argument. Now, what's going to be the fallout? What do you see the, the actual fallout of this admission by this uh, Judy Monroe latent to be? What's going to happen to her? And what's the impact going to be, if there's going to be any, in a broader sense as far as you know judicial appointments are concerned? I can tell you... Two things. First of all, I would discuss the issue of elected lower court judges or not, and I would just say in 10 seconds, not to that's your question. We need to be very careful about what the role of the judiciary is. Is the judiciary there to put a rubber stamp on the popular views of the day, or is the judiciary there to sort of act as a check on the popular views of the day? If it's by election, you can finish my thought for me. If it's by rubber stamp, you can also finish my thought for me. Let me move to your question about the impact. It's very interesting, Roy, and I actually think this is such an interesting subject. I could talk about this all day. The Me Too movement, uh, the U.S. hearings, this lady who's a complete and abject liar, who in any normal universe, or if she was lying on the other side, she would probably be charged with perjury. Here she'll probably be viewed as a martyr. She'll get a get-out-of-jail-free card. The good news arising out of this is that The Economist, and again, I'm going to get a little wonky, Roy, but I find this stuff very interesting. There are a lot of studies. The latest one is in The Economist, a well-reputed magazine. We're not talking to National Enquirer. Has started measuring the views of people to Me Too and the complaints coming forward. And there becomes now a growing concern, and I'm going to make the more interesting point in just 10 seconds. There becomes a growing concern now about people being falsely accused and how an allegation now has been substituted for proof. And anything in our society that puts a a check on the Me Too movement, which I think in many ways, Roy, has been an insult of the highest order to women who have been genuinely sexually assaulted, genuinely raped, genuinely fired from jobs because they would not put out from their boss. And we have all of these complaints now that are either inaccurate, spurious, disingenuous, What's interesting in this study, and I mentioned I would tell you the part that's interesting to me, is we do not see a divide between the genders on Me Too. You would think it would be women versus men in all of these studies and studying the numbers. It is not. Women and men tend to look at these movements very similar. There is not a battle of the sexes. 
there is a battle, and this is what the data tells us, between left and right, between those who support Trump and Clinton. That is dangerous, but what would be more dangerous would be a battle of the sexes. And I think it's very interesting that when you have this woman coming forward and being shown to be an abject liar, it wakes many people up to the idea that we should still, and it's a little bit anachronistic, I mean, we're talking something that a lot of people don't believe in anymore, an allegation is simply not proof. Human beings, whether they're men or whether they're women, are capable of lying, and we need to remember that. Good points all. Um, I'd be more happy or more comfortable with appointed courts if governments didn't hand off decision-making to the courts with such frequency, with such regularity, and with such ease, because it's easier for them to say, well, the court said, so there it is. I couldn't agree with you more, and I wrote an op-ed in the Toronto Star about that a month, two months ago that got a lot of response about just how much, as you just said, and I will parrot what you said, politicians duck their responsibility because they don't want to be overturned because they know some group will take them to court, and very liberal left-wing judges will likely support them. Ari, always good talking to you. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Roy. Ari Goldkind from uh, Toronto. So British Columbians are involved in a referendum right now, a lengthy one, to decide how in upcoming provincial elections they're going to vote. And voters are being asked two questions. Richard Justman is Global News BC provincial legislator, reporter, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Richard, thank you for the time. And first of all, what's at stake? Yeah, Roy, what's at stake is, as you mentioned, the way that British Columbians uh, vote going forward. Uh, It's a referendum, uh, mail-in. People have until the end of November to send back their ballots. Uh, British Columbians now, most of them have their ballots uh, if they were already registered. Uh, And so what people are trying to decide is, do they want to stay with first-past-the-post, which is the electoral system we have in all the provinces in Canada and federally as well, or does British Columbia want to switch to proportional representation? Uh, you know, a proportional system where uh, the number of seats you have is more reflective on the number of votes you get uh, province-wide in this case. Fair bit of passion? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know what it's like whenever there's a <laughs> referendum about issues. There are sides yeah. on, uh, you know, there are people on both sides who are very passionate about it. But it's it's funny. It's not one of those things you hear a lot about in the coffee shops or if you go out for dinner with friends. You know, this referendum has been a little bit silent in terms of really firing up uh, everyday people. But there are people on both sides of this argument who are mainly those uh, advocating for that really want to see a change. But it's not one of those issues. You know, we had a referendum here around the HST in 2011. I remember it well. The provincial government brought in the tax, and it was hugely controversial, and you could feel it then. You know, whenever you went, people were were talking about how they were going to vote and, and what they thought of the tax. And that was a big citizens' movement. How that led out of people being so angry about the tax that they triggered, basically forced the provincial government to call a referendum. It was a much different feeling then than it is now about uh, changing the electoral system. Now, the referendum system in British Columbia is different to anywhere else in the country. You have the option and the opportunity to call referenda. Can you explain to us just uh, briefly how, how that works? Yeah, so how it worked with the HST is uh, in every riding in the province, uh, you needed to get a certain number of registered voters to um, 
basically sign up saying they wanted to see a referendum. It's non-binding in the legislature, but it would be foolish for a premier ever to turn down one of those. So what happened is there was a big advocacy campaign, and the uh, team that wanted the referendum on the HST uh, to uh, get rid of it was able to get enough signatures to basically force the premier to call a referendum. This referendum is very, very different. This was one that was negotiated uh, behind the scenes between the NDP and the Greens during the power-sharing discussion. So, you know, as uh, I'm sure most of the listeners know, we had an incredible election last year in British Columbia uh, where the Liberals ended up with the most seats but not enough to form a majority, and there were negotiations with the Greens between the NDP and the Liberals, and they ended up picking the NDP. And part of that negotiation was that there was going to be a referendum in British Columbia on electoral reform. So uh, that's how we got to this referendum, but there is an option for citizen-led um, referendums, which is what we saw with the HST. Yeah, I, I like that idea. If you have enough people in any constituency who want a referendum, and then you add up all of the people or all the constituencies and you come up with a majority, it's kind of hard for the premier, as you said, the premier of the day, to not go ahead with it because that would be like political suicide, um, yeah. which, which some of them, frankly, are quite good at. <laughs> now, when it comes to political support for, for a position or another position, either the first past the post or the proportional representation, I imagine that, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I don't, it's not like I don't do any reading, okay? Um, but you've got the, 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 the NDP and the Greens like the proportional side of things, right? Yes, they do. Who's on the other side? The Liberals? The Liberals are. So, you know, as, as listeners know, here in British Columbia, the, the political parties work a little bit differently than many other places in the country. There is no strong conservative party provincially. The B.C. Liberals are, as they describe themselves, the free enterprise party. So, uh, you know, federal conservatives are, are members in, of the B.C. Liberals, and, and some federal liberals also support the B.C. Liberals, but many federal liberals also support the NDP provincially. So it's a little bit different here, but the B.C. Liberals are advocating strongly to keep first past the post. Uh, you know, they talk about the stability of the system and that it has done us well for a long, long time. Uh, coming up this week on Thursday, uh, we have a debate that will be on global television and then CKNW as well uh, between Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson and BC Premier John Horgan about this issue. So they'll go 30 minutes debating proportional representation and first past the post. And then at that point, voters will get sort of a better st- uh, sense of, you know, why the political parties have decided to to stand on each side of this debate. Okay, Richard, why is this a multi-week referendum? Yeah, so part of it is it's a mail-in ballot. So, you know, B.C. is a big, big province. It takes time for the ballots to get uh, to people's homes and back. It also gives people time uh, to, you know, research the issue. Uh, Many people now have the ballots in front of them. It's top of mind. They can watch this debate, listen to the debate, read about the issues, and then get their ballot back. Uh, you know, you have to have it back by the end of the month, so that means you need to have it a few days before that in the mail, or you can drop it off at one of 60 service stations here in B.C. Uh, but I think part of it is that there's legislative mandates in terms of how long the period can last, very similar to an election period, and it gives people time to sort of get to know the issues and then make an informed vote. So what happens after it's over? You've done uh, your voting, the, the numbers have all been tallied, we know what the majority of the British Columbians want, what happens then? Is that is that now binding on the government, or is it, again, we'll take it under advisement, we'll take it under consideration? 
It's binding, Roy, but there's a lot of ifs. And that's one of the really fascinating things about this referendum. So once the ballots are counted, all one side needs is 50% plus one. There are no thresholds in terms of the number of people who have to vote. So we could have a very low voter turnout. And still, if just 50% plus one of the ballots returned or for a certain system, that's where we go. But um, it can only be in place for elections after July 1st, 2021. So if, because we're in a minority government situation here, we end up with a provincial election before that date, even if people in the referendum voted for proportional representation, the next election would be fought under the first-past-the-post system. And it's still unclear, because depending on what happens in that election, potentially a new government could you know, scrap the results of the referendum. So um, that part is tricky. And then the other part, if we do change your proportional system, British Columbians are voting on three potential types of proportional representation. Two of them have never been tested anywhere else in the world. Uh, They are made in BC approaches to proportional representation. So a lot has to be done after the vote in terms of drawing up electoral boundaries, figuring out how many MLAs will be in each region, determining what areas are urban compared to rural, compared to semi-urban. So there's a lot of work that has to be done after the referendum to figure out exactly how it will look the next time British Columbians vote. Wow. I, I, you know, I prefer, for, just personally, I prefer the first past the post, but I can see the value of having a really significantly important and people-driven uh, approach to how the election should be held, as opposed to having some backroom politicians make the decisions and then lower the uh, whatever the decision is on the electorate. But given the fact that if, if, if there's an election prior to 2021, you say, uh, the first-past-the-post system is going to remain in place. I would imagine then that John Horgan and Andrew Weaver will be holding hands until at least then. I would expect so, but, you know, a lot of things could happen. Uh, you know, there are some significant differences between the two of them, and if Premier Horgan started moving towards legislation that the Greens just couldn't stand for, then potentially we could see the government fall apart. But, Roy, I think you're right in that sense, that if it passes, we likely will see this go to term. And I've said lots of times I think it's going to end up going to term anyways. Things are pretty stable at this point, but obviously in politics, uh, things can change pretty quickly. B.C., what an interesting place. Several thousand members of the U.S. military now at the the border with Mexico, and it's going to be some time before the migrants, in fact, arrive. And what happens then... uh, I don't know. Colonel Peter Mansour joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He is the former um, executive officer to General David Petraeus and um, the author of Surge, and uh, which, of course, is the, the, the military surge in, in Iraq, where, uh, where the Americans did such a great job of creating a cooperative environment with, uh, with, with the local population from what had been a really... Uncooperative reality. Great book, Colonel Mansour. Thank you for taking the time. What What is your sense of uh, of uh, the president's stationing the military at the border at this time and for that purpose? Well, uh, yeah, I think the president uh, is very serious about trying to uh, reduce or stop uh, illegal immigration into the United States. But um, I think this particular instance where he's pointing out this one caravan of maybe 7,000 individuals uh, moving north through Mexico 
is timed for the U.S. midterm elections. It plays well to his base, uh, which is concerned about illegal immigration, and he's merely pointing out uh, the fact that it's continuing and he's trying to do something about it. The immigration issue is, of course, huge in the United States and becoming more so here. Uh, Do you share the concerns about who may be involved and who may be included in this caravan? Um, Actually, I don't. Uh, These are people fleeing uh, some very violent uh, countries down in Central America. Uh, They just want to get away from, uh, from the violence and the repression down there. They're moving north. Most of them won't even make it to the U.S. border. Um, and, and look, you know, we have 7,000 in this one caravan. The U.S. Border Patrol apprehends 36,000 illegal immigrants every month. So this is uh, really a statistical blip more than an, an invasion. In Iraq, uh, American troops you commanded were battling a fully insurgent or almost fully insurgent local population. The president has said that rocks will be treated as bullets. Now he's backed away from that. Someone. How does that strike you? Um, uh, it strikes me quite frankly. I'm going to use a doctrinal term here, asinine. Uh, when I was in Iraq, I actually um, had kids throw rocks at me uh, and uh, the soldiers I was uh, patrolling with. Um, you know, we chased them off. We didn't uh, fire back. Uh, U.S. troops are much more disciplined th- than to do that. And Unless uh, they're faced with deadly violence, they should use deadly violence in return. They always have the right of self-defense, but quite frankly, a rock is not particularly deadly to our well-armed soldiers. Yeah, this, I, I, I imagine, I, I was thinking about this, I, it cannot play well with, uh, with frontline troops that they're being sent to the border for this purpose, particularly with people so far away from the American border. They're at least... What, five, six hundred miles? And if you're walking that, that's going to take you quite a long time. Yeah, uh, they won't uh, get here anytime soon. Um, as far as the morale of the troops, um, you know, I actually commanded an armored cavalry squadron back in 1999 to 2001, and, and we did routine deployments to the uh, U.S. Mexican border. We had uh, observation helicopters, uh, we actually conducted military training along the border where we would um, report uh, crossings, but we wouldn't do anything. We would simply report the information to the U.S. Border Patrol. Uh, For that, um, to us, that was good training uh, for our military mission of conducting reconnaissance. What the Border Patrol did with the information was up to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not so sure that the troops are going to look at this as uh, necessarily a waste of time, but 15,000 troops along... uh, an extensive border, it's its really not going to do all that much to stop illegal immigration into the United States. I don't like to engage in what-ifs, but what if the president were to order the troops to take action against the migrants? What do you think? I mean, what's your sense? If he were to, I'm sorry, you cut out, if he ordered them to shoot migrants? Well, I mean, he has said that uh, rocks would be treated as bullets, but if he decided... The troops had to show some level of force. Not, I'm not talking about shooting them, but show some level of, of force. How, how would the military respond to that? I, I, I doubt that the, the commanders would obey those orders. U.S. soldiers, by the Posse Comitatus Act of, in the United States, cannot apprehend uh, uh, civilians 
within U.S. borders unless an insurrection has been declared against the U.S. government. And that certainly is not the case. Um, they would be violating the, the law to do that. So I think uh, they would either just ignore the the command or um, they would push back somehow. I'm sure the commanders would uh, would make it clear to the president that what he was suggesting is illegal. Yeah. Uh, Colonel Mansour, if I can just take you back to uh, to your book for just a moment, Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus on the Remaking of the Iraq War. How effective was that surge? I was in a conversation with somebody uh, not long ago about that, and they were making the, the case that Barack Obama was correct in, uh, by pulling American troops out. And my case was, I, I, I would say, no, he was not. And I pointed to your book as, as evidence. Yeah, well, I, I would uh, point out to the fact that the surge reduced ethno-sectarian violence in Iraq by more than 90%, which made it possible for the Sunni Arab community to re-engage in the political discourse in that country. In the elections of 2009 and 2010, they, they voted in greater numbers than any other uh, ethnic community, a sectarian community in, in Iraq. And I think things were going in the right direction until we disengaged. We were the, the U.S. military were the glue that was holding uh, the political situation in Iraq together. And certainly that's not a, a good thing for the long run. But in the short run, we were moving forward and making Iraq politics work. And, and by disengaging, we, uh, we lost our leverage with the Iraqi government. It began to act in a very sectarian manner and things went to downhill from there with the rise of ISIS. So I, I would disagree with the, the person that was talking to you. I think the surge was a success, and it could have been a longer-term success had we remained. Yeah. Colonel, thank you so much for the time. It's always good talking to you. Roy, always a pleasure. Hours wind down to the midterm election on Tuesday morning. It all begins. The voting begins, at least uh, those who haven't already voted. And from what we understand, the early voting has been uh, very strong. Lots of millions of people going out and voting early. So Tuesday night, we will know what the results are and uh, whether or not uh, President Trump retains the um, hold of the, the House and the Senate um, or one or none and only the White House. And as de la Quatero joins us, Washington correspondent for Global News. She has been observing and watching this very carefully. And as thank you for the time, the, uh, the early voting numbers are very high and in a number of states. Is that good news for the Democrats or does nobody really know? We don't really know, but they are extremely high. Last I checked, they were at 35 million of early ballots cast. That's more than the 2014 uh, 14 totals. I think it was more than twice uh, the 2014 totals. So um, what that shows is, is really that voters are feeling energized on, on both sides, really. Both Democrats and Republicans uh, seem to be aware of how important this election is, and they're really uh, energized. They really want to get out and vote. And the youth vote, the numbers of young people who voted early, I understand that's very high. The youth vote is very high, um, which was a big concern. There were a lot of uh, efforts, especially on the Democratic side, to get out uh, the youth vote. Many uh, young voters you know, typically don't vote, especially in the midterms. They don't uh, take the time out of their day. They just don't feel it's as important. So there were a lot of efforts on the Democratic side to get out these millennial voters, first-time voters. Uh, they, a, lot of were, a lot of them were especially energized, um, of course, with everything that happened with Parkland. But also, I think we're seeing just youth voters um, just 
paying more attention to everything that's happening in D.C. We're hearing from youth voters a lot that um, my colleague Jackson Prosco was out in Wisconsin uh, last week talking to young voters, and um, they were telling him that they're sick of the division and the divisive rhetoric coming out of D.C. So young voters certainly uh, mobilizing. We're seeing women as well um, getting out there, uh, you know, running for office, but also getting out there and voting. Um, And those two demographics, young voters and women, are expected to be the decisive uh, factors in this election. So ultimately, what's the election going to be, have been fought on? Normally, uh, the key issue that folks uh, focus on is is the economy in any election. The economy is uh, doing very well in the United States, uh, so it should be good news for incumbents, but not necessarily, because the president, even though the White House isn't in play, the president's in play. What do you think, the, to, the, to, the, to the average American voter, what's it going to be about? Yeah, so there was a new poll out today that was saying that health care and the economy are the two biggest uh, issues, the two most important issues for voters right now. Uh, the U.S. president certainly talking about the economy on the campaign trail, kind of bragging about how the economy has been doing so well under he- his leadership, how unemployment is down and more jobs have been added in recent months. Um, but many are many Republicans actually are hoping he would actually spend more time talking about the economy because Trump is also talking a lot about immigration and uh, what he's really been doing these last few days, especially, is is focusing on on stoking fear. Um, and really, he's zeroing in on his base. So he's talking about illegal immigration a lot, the migrant caravan. Um, and that's many are watching that and saying what he's doing there is trying to stoke his base, trying to get his own voters out to the polls. Um, and it, it plays well. That kind of rhetoric plays well with his base, calling these migrants criminals and stuff. That, that plays well with his base. But it's not necessarily going to work well with the maybe more independent voters. So many hoping he would actually spend more time talking about the economy. Uh, Democrats, uh, for their part, are talking about health care. They're talking about they're trying to send out a more hopeful message. They're, they're trying to counter Trump's kind of uh, fear mongering with a, a hopeful message, talking about uniting the nation. So we saw, uh, you know, Obama, Biden on the campaign trail this week, and that's certainly what they're doing. So how do things then most fundamentally change if the Democrats win the House and or The Senate, uh, an uncivil war inside the government of the United States increasing in volume because they're all going to be looking at 2020 the the day by Wednesday. They'll all be looking at 2020. Absolutely. Um, and so the, the latest forecasts show that the Senate will likely stay Republican and the House is the one that's really in play. Um, and that is looking increasingly likely to go blue. If that happens, it will be a huge headache for Trump. Um, it'll essentially be gridlock. So uh, the House is the chamber of the U.S. government where bills are introduced. Then they send bills over to the Senate. The Senate kind of approves these bills and then sends them to the president to be signed into law. If the House turns blue, then Democrats will likely uh, vote in a majority to block any Republican bills that are introduced, which means that um, parts of Trump's agenda just simply won't even make it to the Senate or to Trump's desk. Um, So that is certainly uh, a a huge deal. And and if the House does go blue, it's going to um, really just turn into gridlock and and become a huge problem for Trump. Mm -hmm. Or you could end up with what Obama said, I have a pen, I have a phone, and I have whatever else he had. And then you have uh, you have governing by decree, which we've learned, which we saw in 2016, was overturned very quickly. It's too bad that uh, the days when politicians would argue during the day and then go for a, a quick bite to eat later on uh, and 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 have social contact. Too bad those days seem to be history, at least for the for the president. And as thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks. Thank you. All the best. 
Inez de la Quatera, the Washington correspondent for Global News. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 